Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. A new 6.4 magnitude earthquake hits southern Turkey. At least 53 civilians are killed in an attack in the Syrian desert. Biden makes a surprise visit to Ukraine. A report finds that Trudeau's use of emergency powers to quell protests was justified. North Korea warns of turning the Pacific into a firing range as it tests more missiles. A report finds that U.S. prison deaths rose nearly 50% during the pandemic. Roald Dahl books are edited for more inclusive language. Meta announces plans for paid verification for Instagram and Facebook. Idaho state lawmakers propose a ban on mRNA vaccines. And dozens in Brazil are killed in deadly storms. Topping our news today, another earthquake rattles Turkey and Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Washington Post, Guardian, BBC News, Al Jazeera, NBC, and USA Today. As the death toll from the 7.8 magnitude earthquake in Syria and Turkey earlier this month rises to more than 46,000, another 6.4 magnitude quake hit southern Turkey and northern Syria on Monday, concentrated in the Turkish province of Hatay which saw some of the worst damage in the previous earthquake. Monday's quake, striking at a depth of 2 kilometers or 1.2 miles, and felt in nearby Syria, Egypt, and Lebanon, was followed by another 5.8 magnitude tremble. According to Turkey's interior minister, at least three people have been killed and a further 213 injured. Turkey's Disaster Management Agency, or AFAD, warned people to stay away from the coastline as a precaution against potentially rising sea levels caused by the quake. Turkish officials have reported over 6,000 aftershocks since the initial February 6th earthquake and 32 following Monday's quake. Meanwhile, Syrian state media reported that falling debris injured six people in Aleppo, while Hatay Mayor Lutfu Sava said a number of buildings also collapsed, leaving people trapped inside as they were returning home or attempting to retrieve furniture after the previous quake. According to its mayor, electricity was out in the Turkish coastal city of Iskenderun, and in Akrabat, Syria, children were reportedly evacuated from a hospital as a precaution, despite freezing temperatures outside. The new quakes came a day after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken pledged an additional $100 million in combined aid to Syria and Turkey, on top of the $85.5 million already pledged by President Joe Biden. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and here's our narrative spin, starting with narrative A from the Canary. Turkey couldn't afford the first earthquake, let alone a second wave, and this is largely due to President Erdogan's neglect. He failed to implement earthquake-safe infrastructure and, in the quake's aftermath, has abandoned vast regions, specifically those in the southeast that are home to marginalized Kurds. While censoring and arresting journalists who report on his negligence, which has left countless people under the rubble, and their surviving family members with little hope for government help. Narrative B comes from TRT World. In the aftermath of this devastating disaster, Erdogan is doing what he can. Almost 2 million people have already been provided temporary shelter by the government as they await further assistance, and a 200,000 apartment rebuilding project, which will see 40,000 houses built in each of the Hatay, Karan Manmaras, and Melantia provinces, is set to begin in March. 
showing solidarity between Turkey's institutions despite those seeking to extort the disaster for political gain. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Our next story, at least 53 civilians are killed in an attack in the Syrian desert. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Naharanet, Jerusalem Post, and ABC News. Syrian state media reported that at least 53 people were killed southwest of Sukhna in the Homs province last Friday while picking for truffles. State media as well as Western sources have attributed the attack to the Islamic State. The UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, or SOHR, said on Saturday that the death toll had reached 61 civilians and seven soldiers from the Syrian army. The Monitor also reported that IS was taking advantage of the annual truffle harvest season to carry out attacks in remote locations. IS hasn't claimed responsibility for the attack, which is usually done via associated media channels. The SOHR reported that IS attacked the same region earlier this month, killing 11 and kidnapping 75 people who were also reportedly collecting truffles. The Sukhna region is held by the Syrian government. Russian forces and Iranian-backed militias are also present in the area. IS's last large-scale attack in Syria occurred last year when the group assaulted a prison holding IS fighters outside of Hashak, which is controlled by the U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces. Though IS had its caliphate, or territory, dismantled in 2019, the group has managed to maintain an ongoing insurgency in the Syrian desert, which on the east side of the Euphrates is held by U.S.-backed forces, and on the west side by the Syrian government. Scott, thank you for the facts of this story. Narrative A comes from ABC News. IS is using the earthquake in southern Turkey and northern Syria as a cover to commit atrocities. With the world's attention on other matters, the group was able to undertake a terrible massacre of Syrian civilians. The fight against IS is definitely not over, and all parties involved must continue their effort in liquidating the group. And Narrative B comes from Al-Arabia. Though one may assume that an attack like this was obviously committed by IS, there is a possibility that the Fatemiyun Brigade, an Iran-backed Afghan Shiite militia, actually is the real perpetrator. Iran sectarian militias are known for their brutality and have also tactically tried to blend in with the local population in the past. Iran continues to meddle in the local politics of the Syrian desert, and one must keep in mind that it is Iran that benefits from chaos in Syria. Do you like the flavor of truffles? Do you ever have them? Nah, I always say no to truffles. I, I don't really like it. I mean, I know it's associated with like expensive food. I mean, this story here is terrible. Poor people picking truffles for rich people getting shot by crazy people. Oh, yeah. It doesn't taste bad, but it doesn't taste that good. I like the taste of Doritos better. I always go with Doritos when I have a choice between truffles and Doritos. <laughs> Can you shave a little Doritos <laughs> yeah, on my, exactly. on my, on my, uh, <laughs> on my Wagyu beef? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The tragedy in Ukraine continues as we look at day 362 and Biden makes a surprise visit to Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, the official website of the White House, Yahoo Finance, Ukraine Forum, and the Donetsk News Agency. U.S. President Joe Biden made an unannounced visit to Ukraine on Monday, his first to the country since Russia launched its invasion nearly a year ago. Biden had been publicly scheduled to visit Poland, but instead traveled through the country to arrive in Kyiv and meet with his Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky. Biden said, as the world prepares to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine, I am in Kyiv today 
to meet with President Zelensky and reaffirm our unwavering and unflagging commitment to Ukraine's democracy, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. The statement added that Biden will discuss continuing military support for Ukraine, including artillery ammunition, anti-armor systems, and air surveillance, which will formally be announced in a package later this week. It comes as the EU's top diplomat, Josep Borrell, issued a stark warning about the ammunition situation in Ukraine on Monday, urging Western partners to speed up deliveries. He said it's the most urgent issue. If we fail on that, the result of the war is in danger. Meanwhile, on the ground, Russian attacks were recorded in the regions of Donetsk, Luhansk, Sumy, Kherson, and Zaporizhia over the past day. Three civilians were killed and one was injured in Donetsk, while a further three civilians were killed and eight others were injured in Kherson. In Ukrainian attacks, one civilian was killed and 12 others were injured in shelling of Russian-held territory in Donetsk on Monday, according to pro-Russia officials. One civilian was also killed and another was injured in Ukrainian shelling of the Russian region of Belgorod on Monday. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative on this story from AP News. Biden's visit to Ukraine, which comes as the war reaches a critical juncture, is a sign of unwavering support for Ukraine and demonstrates that the U.S. is prepared to back Kyiv for as long as it takes. An establishment critical narrative is coming from responsible statecraft. While the Biden administration is publicly announcing it will support Ukraine for as long as it takes, behind closed doors is a different story. Private discourse suggests that U.S. backing for Kyiv's expensive and possibly unachievable military goals may have an expiration date. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, that's Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before the year 2024. I kind of like the style of this uh, surprise visit when uh, Zelensky visited Washington. It was a surprise. When Biden went to Ukraine, it was a surprise. I might make like a surprise visit to Texas Roadhouse tomorrow. Or something. <laughs> yeah, I think you should, man. Keep the party yeah. going. A report claims that Trudeau's use of emergency powers was justified. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Politico, Washington Post, the CBC, New York Times and BBC News. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's use of the Emergencies Act in February 2022 to disperse the so-called Freedom Convoy movement was justified, according to a report published Friday by Canada's Public Order Emergency Commission, or POEC. The report was submitted to the House of Commons by Justice Paul Rouleau. The release concluded six weeks of public hearings that probed the federal government's unprecedented invocation of emergency powers to end protests occupying downtown Ottawa and blocking Canada to U.S. border crossings. The 2,000-page document concluded that most of the cabinet's emergency measures were appropriate and effective to helping return order to the country and preventing any casualties. While concurring that Canadians had a right to lawfully protest against alleged government overreach, in response to the COVID pandemic, Rouleau asserted that the situation in Ottawa became unsafe and chaotic as a result of demonstrations. However, he also pointed out that it was regrettable that such extreme action had to be applied as it stemmed from a likely avoidable situation, citing a collapse in policing and coordination failures across various levels of government. In addition to its findings about Trudeau's actions, the POEC made 56 recommendations to improve intelligence sharing police response to large-scale protests, and the Emergencies Act itself, 
after hearing from over 70 witnesses and 50 experts late last year about the response to Freedom Convoy demonstrations. Those were the facts, and three spins have emerged. The pro-establishment narrative is the first one, coming from Security Magazine. The radical far-right mob called themselves the Freedom Convoy to disguise their true colors. The anti-vax trucker movement was made up of dangerous conspiracy theorists that posed a clear threat to Canadian safety during an already dangerous pandemic. The response of government and police was completely justified during a time of unprecedented uprising. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the post-millennial. Trudeau was warned by his own intelligence agency that invoking the Emergencies Act would only escalate anti-government sentiment and potentially even prompt violence. While protesters were exercising their right to oppose extraordinary public health mandates, the government decided to enact an assault on civil liberties. Labeling all protesters far-right conspiracy theorists is a deliberate distortion of the truth aimed at justifying this authoritarian crackdown. Once again, we have a nerd narrative for this story coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say that there's a 60% chance that the Liberal Party will win the most seats in the next Canadian federal election. In our next story, North Korea tests more missiles and warns of turning the Pacific Ocean into a firing range. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Nikkei Asia, Guardian, CNN, The Japan Times, and Korea Jungong Daily. On Monday morning, North Korea reportedly test-fired two short-range ballistic missiles off its east coast, a move the South Korean military condemned as a serious provocation. In a statement released by state media, Kim Yo-jong, the powerful sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, warned that the extent to which Pyongyang will use the Pacific as a firing range depended on the U.S. military's actions. The U.S. military reacted to the missiles by reaffirming its unwavering commitment to defend South Korea and Japan. Washington also claimed that the launches underscore the destabilizing fallout from the North's unlawful weapons and ballistic missile programs. Monday's test came after Pyongyang conducted its third Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, or ICBM, test in less than a year on Saturday, prompting separate U.S. exercises with South Korea and Japan on Sunday. Amid Pyongyang's recent round of missile launches, Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida stated on Monday that Tokyo has called for an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council, which is set to take place in New York on Tuesday. Meanwhile, due to Pyongyang's recent ICBM launch, South Korea on Monday announced new unilateral sanctions targeting four individuals and five entities allegedly involved in North Korea's nuclear and missile programs or in sanctions evasion. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an establishment critical narrative from Global Times. Despite the U.S. and its allies blaming Pyongyang for increasing tensions, Washington cannot obscure the fact that it bears the main responsibility for declining diplomatic relations, especially as the Biden administration has switched back to a confrontational course following Donald Trump's efforts at de-escalation. Washington is fueling conflict to force closer ties with Japan and South Korea in order to expand its regional influence. New York Times gives us a pro-establishment narrative. While the North regularly slams South Korea-U.S. drills as alleged invasion rehearsals, it is the desperate regime in Pyongyang that is escalating tensions to consolidate its power. In doing so, the nation keeps violating U.N. Security Council resolutions by expanding its nuclear and ballistic missiles activities, all the while starving its own population. Washington and its allies are obliged to show strength against the ruthless North Korean regime. 
And we have another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that Kim Jong-un will no longer be the leader of North Korea by January of 2040. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. A new report claims that U.S. prison deaths were up 50% during the first year of COVID. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, China Daily, Business Standard News, Independent, and the UCLA Newsroom. On Sunday, the New York Times, citing data collected by researchers at the University of California, Los Angeles, reported that state and federal prison deaths in the U.S. nearly doubled during the first year of the COVID pandemic, with six states seeing prison deaths rise more than 50%. While the pandemic was cited as a key contributor to the elevated death tolls, inmates also succumbed to other illnesses, suicide, and violence. UCLA data shows that 6,182 people died in American prisons in 2020, up from 4,240 in 2019, despite the prison population declining to about 1.3 million from over 1.4 million. According to the New York Times report, ample evidence showed that prisons were COVID hotspots, amplified by an aging inmate population, understaffed correctional facilities, and ill-equipped medical personnel. Alabama, Arkansas, South Carolina, and West Virginia were among the states with the highest prison mortality rates in 2020, with West Virginia having a record 96 deaths per 10,000 prisoners during the first year of COVID. Some states with typically low death rates reportedly saw significant spikes in 2020, with Michigan and Nevada seeing roughly 70 deaths per 10,000 inmates, more than double the previous year. However, a few states, including Vermont and Wyoming, saw a drop in prison death rates. UCLA School of Law's Behind Bars Data Project has been tracking prison deaths since the federal government stopped reporting deaths in custody in 2019. Those were the facts, and here are the spins. The first one is a progressive narrative coming from prisonpolicy.org. The mounting deaths in American prisons during the COVID pandemic underscores just how overpopulated U.S. prisons are and why America must decarcerate. System failure turned prison sentences into death sentences, and it's time that the U.S. release nonviolent offenders from jail and seek alternative methods of rehabilitation. And we have a conservative narrative from Daily Wire. While it's tragic to see the effects of COVID as it spreads through American prisons, prisoners cannot simply be released en masse because of a pandemic, which uprooted the lives of nearly every person in the world. Mass decarceration, which will only lead to social deterioration, isn't the answer. In our next story, Roald Dahl books are edited to make language more inclusive. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ITV News, BBC News, The Telegraph, RTE, Guardian, and Associated Press. New editions of famed children's author Roald Dahl's books have been reviewed to alter text referring to weight, mental health, gender, and race for inclusivity. The changes were first reported by the Telegraph newspaper. Edited passages include swapping the word fat to describe Augustus Gloop in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to enormous, changing Mrs. Twit's description in the twits from ugly and beastly to simply beastly. And editing classic text the BFG so that the titular character's coat is no longer black and Mary goes still as a statue rather than white as a sheet. References to being crazy and mad have also been removed, while a weird African language in the twits is now simply an African language. Hundreds of changes have been undertaken by Puffin in order that, the publisher said, the texts can continue to be enjoyed by all today. A review of Dahl's collection reportedly began in 2020, 
after a new Hollywood production of The Witches faced backlash over the depiction of the Grand Witch with fingers missing. Paralympians and charities complained the representation was offensive, leading Warner Brothers to apologize. A spokesperson for the Roald Dahl Story Company, which owns the rights to the corpus in collaboration with Puffin and was acquired by Netflix in 2021, has said that any and all alterations to the texts implemented were small and carefully considered. Critics, including Booker Prize-winning author Salman Rushdie and literary editor of London's Sunday Times newspaper, Laura Hackett, however, have hit back at the news, reacting angrily and even deeming it censorship. Dahl died in 1990 at age 74. His books have sold over 300 million copies worldwide in 68 languages. The review was carried out in collaboration with Inclusive Minds, a group working towards improving the inclusivity and accessibility of children's literature. I'm going to guess we have some uh, divisive and opposing narratives on this story, Eric. Let's start with the left narrative from The Guardian. It is very common during print runs of new books to review the language of the text, as well as other publication features like cover and page layout. These edits do nothing to diminish the original wit or spirit of the text, and while the original storylines and characters have been left untouched, the considered alterations make the texts far more inclusive and appealing to modern audiences in an age of rising cultural sensitivity. Washington Examiner gives us a right narrative. This decision has rightly prompted widespread condemnation from the literary community. Arguments that Dahl's children's books are in some way bigoted is ludicrous, and censoring his satire is nothing short of modern McCarthyism. The review is also an insult to the intelligence of audiences, who should be allowed to interpret and respond to literature on an individual basis rather than have publishers curate and sterilize their experience of storytelling. The other day, someone called me enormous and beastly, and, and had they called me fat, ugly, and beastly, that would have been too far. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I, yeah. I, have, I have the same problem. <laughs> <laughs> and in social media news, Facebook and Instagram plan to get paid verification. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Guardian, BBC News, The Verge, Meta's corporate blog, and Yahoo Finance. On Sunday, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced that Facebook and Instagram users in Australia and New Zealand would soon be required to pay for the verified blue badge. Meta's premium subscription service starts at $11.99 per month on the web and $14.99 per month on iOS and Android. Classified as Meta Verified. The paid service lets users verify their accounts with a government ID and offers extra impersonation protection. MetaVerified will only be available to users over the age of 18 with prior posting history, not businesses. Once their profile is verified, users can only change the profile name, username, date of birth, or photo after going through the Meta Verified subscription and verifications application process again. Meta-verified accounts will also have increased visibility on the platform as well as prioritized customer support among other benefits. The increased post visibility will depend on a subscriber's existing audience size and the topic of their posts, and smaller accounts may see a greater impact. This comes after Twitter said it would allow only paid subscribers to use two-factor SMS authentication to secure their accounts. Twitter Blue's monthly subscription costs $11. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. Let's look at the spins. The first one is an establishment critical narrative coming from ABP Live. Though for years, Facebook claimed all of its services were free and always will be, the value of users' personal data meant the site was never truly free. Unfortunately, the launch of MetaVerified is a tone-deaf move reinforcing tech greed. 
by forcing users to pay for services that were expected to be a default offering, such as protection from impersonation, the paid service looks more like a marketing pitch than of actual value to creators. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Business Insider. Meta's new offering is fundamentally about increasing authenticity and security by cutting down on trolls, impersonations, and fraud. Though it will undoubtedly also help the social media platform diversify its revenue stream and reduce its reliance on advertising, Meta Verified further benefits users by adding premium value to their account. At $11.99 or $14.99 a month, it's a bargain for the content. Idaho state lawmakers propose a ban on mRNA vaccines. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Idaho Press, Your News, Fox News, Alternet, and Florida Department of Health. Last Wednesday, two Idaho state Republican lawmakers, Senator Tammy Nichols and Representative Judy Boyle, introduced legislation that would make it a misdemeanor to administer mRNA vaccines. House Bill 154 was introduced in the House Health and Welfare Committee. It states, a person may not provide or administer a vaccine developed using messenger ribonucleic acid technology for use in an individual or any other mammal in this state. As reasoning for this bill, Nichols said she was concerned that mRNA vaccines development was fast-tracked with no liability, access to data, risk-benefit analysis, or informed consent. She also cited concerns of blood clots and heart issues. Democratic Representative Ilana Rubel, however, pushed back against Nichols' assessment of the vaccine, raising questions about the Republicans' claim that the vaccine's development was fast-tracked. If passed by the committee, it will go to the full House for debate. Despite Nichols' claims, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's website states that the vaccine's benefits, such as prevention of COVID-19 cases and its severe outcomes, outweigh the risks of myocarditis and pericarditis. This comes as elsewhere, the Florida Surgeon General last week notified both the health sector and the public that since the COVID vaccine rollout, there has been a 1,700% increase in self-reported vaccine adverse event reporting system reports in Florida alone compared to a 400% increase in vaccination administration. Reports of life-threatening conditions have reportedly increased by over 4,400%. All right, Eric, we have a left narrative spin from Forbes. This is a political stunt aimed at threatening healthcare providers who administer life-saving vaccinations, all to appease the anti-vaxxer faction of the right, though the CDC, the WHO, and various medical journals have all presented facts to the contrary Idaho's GOP has chosen to ignore the science and punish doctors. If they were truly concerned with health rather than politics, the lawmakers would go after the pharma companies that developed the vaccine. A right narrative is coming from News Treason. VAERS reports are made by both individual vaccine recipients and healthcare providers. So these data are not to be taken lightly. States have a right to study, question, and legislate based on vaccine research. This issue has become politicized, but not because of so-called anti-vaxxer right-wingers. Left-wing media outlets and big tech have censored reports of vaccine injuries, and it's about time office holders held the rich and powerful to account. Hey, Scott, didn't you live in Idaho for a while? I did, uh, but I lived in Moscow, Idaho, which is kind of a blue dot in an otherwise, you know, largely red state. So instead of being anti-vax, they just have someone kill a bunch of co-eds once every few years. <laughs> I knew you were going to take a cheap shot at that one. <laughs> <laughs> Tragedy in Brazil as dozens are killed in Sao Paulo flooding and landslides. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Guardian, France 24, the BBC News, and the Washington Post. 
On Saturday, officials said 36 people had been killed in the Sao Paulo state by flooding and landslides caused by significant rainfall. The death toll is expected to rise. The state government reported more than 23.6 inches, or 60 centimeters, of rain inundated the area in one day. The rainfall reached one of the highest amounts ever recorded in the country for that short amount of time. Conditions at Latin America's busiest port in Santos were equally as brutal, with wind reports topping 34 miles per hour, or 55 kilometers per hour, and wave heights exceeding one meter. Sao Paulo State Governor Takizio de Freitas declared a state of emergency for five coastal towns. Following a visit to the area, de Freitas made $1.5 million available for response and rescue operations. On Monday, more than 500 rescue workers searched for the missing and repaired damaged roads. Heavy rains continued hampering rescue and recovery operations and forcing the cancellation of carnival activities. Annual carnival celebrations were canceled in the hardest-hit areas along the coastline, a popular destination for the wealthy. Typically, the festivities take place in the five days leading up to the Christian celebration of Lent. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva planned a trip to the devastated area on Monday. He said, We are going to bring together all levels of government and, with the solidarity of society, treat the wounded, look for the missing, restore highways, power connections, and telecommunications in the region. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Narrative A comes from Climate Center. While science has not allowed us to quantify the role of climate change in Brazil's flooding events, we can with certainty say that human-caused climate change is responsible. These catastrophic events are in alignment with climate prediction models and future projections. Based on forecasts, these devastating events will not only continue, but as greenhouse emissions and warming increases, these events will increase as well. Contrast that with Narrative B from the Yale School of the Environment. World politicians have been quick to blame climate change for damage to infrastructure and the all-around disruption of daily lives. What they failed to mention is that climate change wouldn't be that big of a deal if it weren't for the failed policies and poor planning. Without proper building and zoning policies and significant investments in infrastructure, governments have left people vulnerable to flooding and other infrastructure-related disasters. Blaming climate change doesn't fix the problems, but makes way for absolving policymakers of their responsibility for the unnecessary loss of lives and property. And Metaculous Prediction Community is chiming in with their nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that the total damage incurred by climate change during the 21st century will be 8.84% of the world GDP. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.